Delighted to have a really good friend of mine with us today. Hello and welcome, R.C. Sproul Jr. Well, thank you, David. I'm happy to be with you as always. Ah, thank you. Before we get into the questions, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am, as you know, very busy uh, right now getting ready to open up what we call the Shepherd's College, which is a pastoral training uh, college that is built on a discipleship model more than an academic model. Yes, we're asking for educated clergy, but uh, we're asking for uh, men of character. And so uh, this opens August 30th, and uh, which is very soon, and we're hard at it trying to get everything ready for that uh, here in the United States. Brilliant. Well, in case the listeners and viewers didn't guess, I say we are both Christians, which means that we're passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And as an author, you have written much about our faith. And you do also have a great interest in economics and business. Tell us yes. about that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I was raised by a theologian uh, who uh, had a great gift for taking complex ideas and making them understandable without distorting them. He, had, he, he was a very uh, logical thinker. And as he was training me theologically, I found myself not only loving the theology, but loving the, the interconnectedness of the ideas. My father was what's called a systematic theologian. And when I first was introduced to the subject of economics, it happened through uh, a fellow who was a student of my father's, but also a uh, successful businessman who owned a, uh, a cardboard box factory in Wichita, Kansas. And he was very zealous about economics, and he introduced me and was giving me uh, pamphlets and books and booklets to read. And I just started devouring these in high school. Uh, and just fell in love in many ways for the same reasons I fell in love with the theology that I love because of that interconnectedness. Uh, I, I saw uh, the capacity to, to learn a few basic principles and then everything else, every question unfolds from that. And so, uh, yeah, it was just fascinating. And of course, it, there's a connection. People like to think of economics as if it is uh, a raw science. And in fact, even people that I would agree with on their ideas uh, make the mistake, I think, of, of pretending that we don't prefer prosperity over poverty. That that's not a better thing. That there, that there aren't questions of right and wrong involved in economics. There certainly are. And uh, so that that helped uh, sort of cultivate that interest. When I was uh, in high school, uh, I chose my college that I wanted to attend because uh, one of the rock stars in economics uh, was the chairman of the department at this particular school. Uh, I would spend my spare time when other other guys were souping up their cars. I was <laughs> sitting around reading Human Action by Von Mises. So kind of a weird kid, but uh, yeah, it was a, a deep interest. Brilliant. In the forward of your book, Biblical Economics, which is absolutely excellent, by the way, your dad jokes that you are answering questions about economics to questions that actually nobody was asking from a very young age. What did he make of it all? Well, see, he, <laughs> this was very common between us where uh, he was introduced to something and he studied it well and hard. 
uh, and developed his own convictions. And, and as it's noted in that foreword, uh, with respect to economics, his convictions took a radical turn, and that was through this same fella that introduced me to economics. Uh, he was also, by the way, the founder of the high school that I attended. Um, but so he introduced my father to this, and my father made this great turn, and I just kind of zipped right past him and 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 took again those principles, and was willing to follow them wherever the logic led. And so I ended up sort of uh, pretty much hardcore. Uh, compared to my dad, but with the same direction. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I remember at that age engaging adults in economic conversation, and a lot of people really hadn't thought through issues. This was a, around the time of uh, the election of Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Uh, and so there was an increased interest in these matters among people, including Christians, uh, but there, people were just starting their baby steps. And I was able to come in and again, ask some penetrating questions. And, and, and there were times when, because I had gone in a sense beyond my father, that I turned around and gently and graciously argued with him and said, come on, the, the water's fine. Come on in. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's sort of part of what he's talking about there. Yeah. What are kids not being taught about money that we should be teaching them? Well, uh, for one thing, we, people really, kids and adults, have very little idea where wealth comes from. There is a uh, this, this mistaken notion that money is wealth and money is paper and that the government can just create it out of thin air and uh, then decide. I, I, I love this idea this notion i've spoken on this a few times uh, is sort of a relatively new idea to me but it, it makes it fits with what i've always believed that is this from a darwinist perspective looking at the world as that which pops out of nothing from which you get more from less without adding anything in it really seems quite natural to look at wealth as something that just happens. And then once you take that premise, it makes some kind of sense to say, well, let's divide it equally. But when you look at the actual biblical story of creation, we don't see God discovering the world. We don't see the world popping up in front of him. We find God making the world, speaking it into existence, that he has authority over all things because he made all things and and he owns all things in that sense and we are simply stewards under his care so i i would want uh young people and adults to come to a place where they realize you don't get something from nothing yeah you don't get something from nothing in the creation you don't get something from nothing in terms of wealth creation uh, you know this in in training up your your sons uh, you, you, I'm sure, talk to them about the idea of uh, value added to what they're bringing to the table so that when they go into and they're pitching a business on their Animate My Logo, they're able to say, if you, I can take, which is amazing to me, I can, we can take a bunch of zeros and ones and we can manipulate those zeros and ones and out of that is going to come more business for you. And 
you know, that's why your boys' customers are screaming, take my money, take my money. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, it, again, it doesn't just happen. I, I remember asking uh, high school age students in this context where I was teaching in the high school uh, who were taking this premise, hey, well, uh, whatever this thing that everybody needs is, let's just have the government pay for it. And I asked them, where do you think the government gets it? And they had this deer in the headlights look like they just, they'd never asked that question. And I had to gently and carefully explain to them that government doesn't have anything that it doesn't take from someone else. Yeah. The difference between the marketplace where we go in and we trade and we create and the government is the government, it, it, they're like barbarians. They don't build a culture. They come and plunder a culture. Yeah. And then they decide what they're going to spend this money on after they're done feeding themselves. Uh, but now I'm going to preach it. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> you have. And we're going to build on some of those topics a little bit later on. Let's, let's go back to the beginning, because in your book, you know, you really developed this idea. And again, if you haven't got this book, Biblical um, Economics, get it. It's so good. You talk about the history of money. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I will. But before I do, I want to give you a little bit of the history of the book, because I think it applies also to your situation. Uh, my father uh, actually tricked me into writing this book. I was a student uh, at Grove City College here in the United States. And he called me up in the dorm one day and he asked me a question. He said, R.C., do you think you could write a 15 page paper on where money comes from? I said, yeah, I could do that. He said, do you think you could write a 15 page paper on where profit comes from or the, the use of profit? I said, yeah, I could do that. He said, how about one on inflation? I said, yeah, I could do that. He said, do you think you could do 10 of these? I had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. I had no idea why he was asking. I was just answering his questions. And eventually he said, yeah, do you think you could do 10 of these? I said, well, I suppose if I had enough time, he said, well, why don't you take this summer between uh, your semesters and do that? And when you're done, you'll have a book. I, if he had said to me, RC, I want you to write a book this summer, I would have said, yeah. you're crazy. Yeah. And there's no way I can do that. But he snuck up on me and got me to agree that I could do this thing that I didn't even recognize as a book. And that book is now in print uh, 36 years later. Wow. Since it first came out uh, in print. I mean, 30 yeah. more years after <laughs> since I actually wrote it. But it's been in print for 36 years. Now, you and I have talked about your boys' business. And you wanted to have all you were looking for was I want to teach them lessons to these boys and maybe they might be able to get a little bit of pocket money out of this. And uh, I think that maybe it was God who snuck up on you <laughs> and showed you all, Hey, I, you know, I can make much of this. And uh, so there's that story. Now, yeah. on that, what's uh, amazing he, about that is I'd heard you talk about that story before. But oh, okay. I, had no, I had no idea that it was this book. So this is actually your first book that you've ever written. Yes. I can't believe yes. that. 
Okay, well, that, that's even more impressive because it's so it's so amazing. So, okay, brilliant. Well, sorry for interrupting, but yeah, great. Well, that's okay. Now, on that 15-page paper on money, uh, <laughs> where does money come from? When I say that we're confused and we think that money is wealth, uh, there's a reason why we make that mistake because what money is is a store of wealth. And in the book, I, I, I tell this story about how it might have come to pass, because without a store of wealth, without money, uh, trade, which is vitally important for everybody's well-being, uh, trade would reduce down to simply barter. Now, first, let me explain on the trade part. Every time we make a trade freely, it's an amazing thing. We haven't made anything new, but there's profit to be made. And there's profit made on both sides because every time we trade i have something that i value less than what you have yeah. and you have something that you value less than what i have and when we trade again we haven't made anything when we trade now i have something that i value more you have something you value more between the two of us our wealth increased yeah okay now the difficulty with uh barter is finding people who want what we have to offer and who have what we need. And in addition to that, finding a way to scale that appropriately. Okay. Uh, let's say that um, you own a car dealership, David, and uh, you want to tell your story uh, about, about growing this car dealership and you've written this book and you ask me to edit the book. That's some of the work that I do is I, I edit books. So you say, hey, how much would it cost for me to edit this book? And I say, uh, uh, I'm going to say a, a thousand quid. Uh, I don't know what a quid is, but your audience does. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I imagine a car costs more than a thousand quid. Is that right? A new car? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can get cars for less than that, but you won't really want to be driving one. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, you know, if, if it were, uh, if a thousand quid could buy you half of a decent car, uh, you don't have a half a car and a half a car doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. Uh, it doesn't help me any. So that trade is going to be troubled because of that inability. Even though you have something I want, I have something you want, we can't scale it to so that it matches those, how we value these things. What money does is it stores the value so that if you pay me that thousand quid, I now have the ability to go to somebody else who has something that I value at a thousand quid and trade with them. And what's really going on is I'm trading my editorial services to you. You're trading your money to me. I'm trading the money to whoever I'm buying something from. And so we have a three-way trade going on. So money exists to do that. Now, uh, that's why it makes sense. There's a, in, in the chapter, there's a list. I didn't invent this list, but there's a list of five qualities that you want for a healthy uh, money standard. Uh, it has to be something that's widely valued. Uh, you know, there was a time in the United States when tobacco was money. And if that were the case today, I venture to guess it would have a very low value because uh, happily fewer and fewer people are smoking. Uh, now for the people who want it, that it's very valuable, people who don't. Uh, so it's gotta have a steady value 
a un virtually universal value. It's got to be divisible. That means it can be divided, right? Just like this scenario with the car, the car can't be something good to trade because you can't divide a car, but you can divide a coin yeah. uh, or you can divide uh, a paper connected to a coin. Uh, so there's divisible, uh, oh, it's gotta be portable. You gotta be able to take it from place to place. I actually used to have a distant relative who was uh, literally the princess of Yap. Yap is a South Seas Island that has as their form of money or did at one point, these giant oval rocks that were like 10 feet high. Very uh, hard to come by and even harder to carry around with. Yeah. <laughs> Not real portable. Uh, <laughs> and when you look at this list of these five things, what you discover is gold and silver work really well. Gold and silver match all of these criteria in different ways. Uh, sort of silver being a smaller denomination, if you will, of these precious metals. And it becomes a store of value. And the way that paper money came into the equation or coins made out of things less than gold or silver is that to increase the portability and the divisibility, banks came into the equation. You can store your gold here. We're going to give you a receipt. And this receipt, you can go and trade with anybody else. And whoever brings that receipt in here will get that gold. Or you can divide it. And, you know, you, we can give you a, 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 like a checkbook full of uh, each one worth one ounce of gold. And you can go and trade these without having to carry around the gold. And so that's how the paper came in. And the temptation there, of course, has always been, well, what if we, because not everybody goes to the bank at the same time, what if we made more slips of paper than we have gold coins back at the bank? Yep. Out of that comes fractional reserve banking. That's what those yep. fancy words mean. There is a fraction of the money, the paper money in circulation. There's a fraction of that being stored as a uh, hard money or yeah. gold or silver. Okay. Yeah. And that's where the United States was. I'm not sure exactly the history of the United Kingdom. I, I know that they're pretty much parallel on here. And I know that uh, one, uh, uh, FDR, Frank Delano Roosevelt, took America uh, off of gold for a time and then raised the price after he took everybody's gold. He, I mean, this, people don't even understand yeah. the history of how bad things have been, including the bank holiday that Roosevelt brought about in the time of the Depression, where he literally made it illegal to own gold. Okay, we're talking about getting a vaccine, which we can talk about. Well, we won't talk about that today. But uh, imagine the government showing up tomorrow at your house saying, not have you gotten your vaccine, but give us all your gold or we're taking you to jail. Yeah. Uh, that's what the American government did to the American people and then jacked up the sale price of uh, gold and printed money to fill the difference. And uh, that's how they financed the, uh, the New Deal. So Nixon in 1971 or two uh, completely breaks away uh, the American dollar from any connection to silver or gold and repudiates the silver certificate paper dollars that were out there. And wouldn't you know the next thing that happened was inflation. 
Yeah. So Gerald Ford, if you were, well, you, you don't remember, you're too young, but Gerald Ford, who, who took over after Nixon's resignation, uh, his big charge was to beat the inflation monster. And uh, his big slogan was win, whip inflation now, as if it was something the American people could do. When the reality was, it was the American government and the Federal Reserve Bank that was responsible for the inflation and has been ever since. This is why uh, when you read a story or watch a movie and they and it's set in the 1920s and someone finds a bag of gold worth $10,000 and people are killing each other and you're thinking, well, why would anybody do that for $10,000? And then you realize, oh, that $10,000 is like... $10 million in our day. That's yeah. the fruit of inflation. We think of inflation as increased prices, but increased prices are the fruit of inflation. What's being inflated is the money supply. And uh, well, got to take a different chapter to explain uh, yeah. that in the book. That's so good and so helpful. So that so we call that quantitative easing, right? This is where the government just start diluting the amount of quids in the system, yeah. and the, therefore the value of that quid this year is less than what it was worth effectively last year. So you could buy less. Right. Yeah. Right? So, so what what is the consequences, and what is the temptation, and, and also what is the reality of what happens on a day to day basis in both of our countries? Is there uh, is there this system where they are just printing more and more money every yes. day without us knowing about it. And, and what is, what impact is that going to have for everyone down the line? Well, let me, let me first explain that these impacts I'm about to lay out for you are actually what they wanted. And I'm also going to uh, lay this at the feet of a Brit. Uh, this comes to us from John Maynard Keynes, uh, who was an economist an Englishman who looking at uh, the depression made the mis mistake of thinking, oh, well, the problem is nobody's buying anything. There's not enough purchasing power out there. Now you would think that if there was not enough purchasing power out there, that the last thing that you would want to do would be to dilute the purchasing power of the money out there. But in one sense, he had this bit of insight. He realized if we start devaluing the money, then people who have been saving will start spending. Because here's what happened. Let's say that uh, you have $100 in the bank uh, at the beginning of the year, and over the course of the year, the quantitative easing has increased the money supply by 50%. Your $100 that you saved, you, and let's say that at the bank, you earned 5% interest then at the end of the year, you got $105. But you can now buy the equivalent from a year ago of something like $52 worth of what you had. So you just lost yeah. uh, almost $50, okay? You've just, that's what it does. But that decreasing the, or decreasing the purchasing power is almost too polite a way to describe it your wealth is being stolen. Remember, the money is a store of value. And what this does is it sucks the value, the actual wealth out of anyone who saves. So now saving becomes a really bad idea. And the idea is, and that's, again, that's what Keynes wanted. 
because that creates an increase in demand, but it's not a real increase in demand because there's not more wealth to be traded for this stuff. It's just yeah. more paper. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why what comes down the road after the inflation is always the depression. But in the meantime, those who have uh, spent more than they have earned are celebrating because they're paying off their debts with this less valuable money. I mean, imagine if you were a uh, trillion dollars in debt in Germany just before hyperinflation hits. And the next thing you know, a loaf of bread costs a trillion dollars. Yeah. You take your loaf of bread down to the market, you sell it, and then you take your wheelbarrow full of paper down to your uh, the person you owe and you say, I'm paid in full. Yeah. You just, you borrowed a trillion dollars, you paid it back with a loaf of bread. Yeah. Uh, that again, that that rewards and blesses uh, those who have been spending more than they are earning, and it punishes those who are earning, or excuse me, who are yeah, earning more than they are spending. And the reality is, probably the single most foundational economic truth is simply this: if you consume more than you produce, that is, if you spend more than you make. Things will go badly for you economically. Yeah. If you consume less than you make, things will go well for you economically. That is the foundational truth. And what inflation does is turn it on its head and create destruction everywhere it goes. Yeah. And it's a real stealth tax as well, isn't it? Because if the government turned around and said, look, we're, paying, we're putting up, we have VAT here, you know, on purchases. So we, we put it up from 20% to 30%. There'd be an uproar, but there'd be people protesting. But with inflation, it's a very subtle way of doing it. And, and in real terms, you know, so for an example, they're talking about giving nurses here a 3% pay increase. But if inflation was actually 5%, in real terms, they're actually getting a 2% pay cut, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah. And let me mention something else that, that's easily overlooked in this scenario. You're absolutely right that inflation is one of the reasons why it's so appealing to governments is that it is a hidden tax. But here's where it becomes not a hidden tax. You mentioned, I, I don't remember what you call it, if it's a VAT, a value-added yeah, tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you increase the money supply, you can keep the tax rate right where it is. But if everything is now twice as expensive, your taxes have now doubled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 They got you coming and going. Yeah. Over our lifetime, we've both lived in countries that like to spend a lot. How do our governments plan on getting out of debt? Do we need to? And who do we both actually owe, owe all of this money to? Well, yes, we do need to, and they have no plan. And yes, we do actually owe people. The, the idea that, uh, oh, we only owe it to ourselves. Uh, let me refute that very, very quickly. Um, let's suppose, David, that you and I, uh, well, let, let's, yeah, let's suppose that you have been diligent, you consume less than you produced, and you've got uh, uh, a million quid in the bank. And I have been completely reckless and I have a debt of a million quid. How would you like, and suppose you came to me and said, hey, RC, I'm a little bit worried about you. I understand you've got a debt of a million quid. And I said to you, well, David, don't sweat it, man, because, you know, we've got a million quid in the bank and we can pay it. 
well, what do you mean we've got to make? Well, you know, you know, your, your million quid, that's, that'll take care of my debt. Well, it's my debt. It's not your debt. Yeah. And, you know, we may be friends, but I'm not expecting you to pay my million dollar or million quid debt. Uh, that idea that, well, we owe it to ourselves. No, some of us owe it to others of us. Okay. And by the way, sometimes that us is not us. Uh, one of the, the reasons why, and this is what's so bizarre, one of the reasons why people around the world in terms of buying treasury bills and bonds and things like that, one of the reasons why they're willing to do this is because what they're purchasing is confidence in the ability of the federal government to tax its citizens. Right. They're not saying, hey, we're betting on the United States to get super efficient and turn a profit. We're betting on the United States to increase its market share by 20%. We're betting on the United States because their R&D department has come up with this really great thing that's going to turn the market on fire. No, it's we believe they'll be able to continue to tax those people to pay us what they owe us. And we do. You know, they're... they're at the very least, we're always paying the interest every year in the American budget, uh, the federal budget, there is uh, payments going out for all the money they've borrowed before. And at the end of the day, the only way out is, in a, and it's not a, at all a good way out, it's hyperinflation, like we talked about with Germany, with wheelbarrows full of money that destroys everything. It's not going to be pretty when it comes. Yeah. We have seen the resurgence in people getting behind Marxism, even if they didn't realize that they were. Tell us about that. Well, Marxism is a uh, lie from the pit of hell that is grounded in the idea, again, that wealth comes through exploitation. You can see the overlap of traditional Marxism with uh, critical race theory and uh, intersectionality because both look at the world as being made up of oppressors and the oppressed. Now, I happen to look at the world as oppressors and the oppressed. I just happen to think the oppressors typically are the government and the oppressed are the citizens. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, that's, that's what's kind of destroyed Marxism on the world stage. This is what caused the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was simply this, the, the Soviet Union, the people of the Soviet Union could no longer pretend that what the government was trying to do was actually serve them. They understood that they are the oppressors and we are the oppressed. And that's the bizarre thing about Marxism is it's so straightforward about its plans and yet it doesn't call it oppression, it calls it liberation. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't call us the oppressed, it, call, it calls us the liberated, and it's ridiculous. Now, uh, the idea uh, from each according to his ability to eat, to each according to his needs, uh, in some ways sounds good to us. We, we like the idea of being gracious and serving those in need and all of that, and we should, it's a great thing. But what we miss, again, just like we miss how government is not like the marketplace in this context we miss that government is an agency of force that the idea that the government's going to take from this wealthy person and give it to this poor person and that's a good thing that's something jesus would celebrate is ridiculous mm -hmm. 
because Jesus believes in the word of God. And the word of God says you don't take money from one person and give it to another. That's called theft. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's the rich person taking the poor person's money or the poor person taking the rich person's money. It's still theft. When, In fact, I, I think sadly, and I've been guilty of this too, uh, those of us who are Christians who believe in liberty uh, tend to object to Marxism or socialism or any kind of welfare state, uh, we object to it on the grounds of, hey, you're taking from me. It's a kind of a selfish objection. When the reality is you're harming the people you're claiming to help and you're robbing God. The money that you earn, David, and that your boys earn in the work that you do, we mentioned at the beginning of the program that God owns everything. And we're just stewards. And the money that you earn is the money that God says, here, David, I want you to take care of this. And when the government comes along and says, well, we're going to take that and put it over here, they're taking from God. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a God-given design for how we care for those who have less than us. It's real, and it's God-designed. It's not Marx-designed, and it pushes back against all of the weaknesses uh, that we have in our system. Let me, let me very quickly uh, give you the picture here. The, the, the center of this is uh, of God's plan when he established the nation of Israel. It was gleaning. We know about this in the story of Ruth, uh, who gleans Boaz's field. And gleaning was this. When you're a farmer and you're gathering your harvest, uh, you might have a hard time because of some brambles getting into the corner to get this. You might have dropped a <coughs> sheath or two off the wagon on your way by, uh, and there may be a stock here and a stock there. Well, if you were poor, you could gather those things together to meet your needs, which was hard work. So there was a disincentive to be dependent upon another's. But there's also this. This is what I love. The key thing. One, God requires it of the farmer. Two, there is no civil penalty if the farmer violates God's law. So God says to the to the successful farmer, you need to let people glean in your field. And the successful farmer either says, yes, okay, Lord, or no, I won't. But in no case does the guy get arrested. In no case does the government come and say, if you don't let people glean, we're going to take your farm. The third thing is, and this is really important, that while this fellow has the obligation to let people glean, he has no obligation to let a specific person glean. They do not have an entitlement individually to the leftovers of his farm. They have to ask yeah. for permission to do this. Now, again, the guy's got a God-given obligation to say to somebody, yes, of course you can. So you've got everything except the ability to force anyone to give to anyone else. Yeah, It's all voluntary and it's all personal. It's all relational. And that's how things ought to be. And that's how things once were in our day. I'm going to save you from asking me this question because I get it all the time. Well, you know, if the church is supposed to be taking care of the poor, why did the government have to take it over? You may have heard that objection. Well, the truth is the government didn't have to take it over. That prior to the government taking it over, uh, people in 
Western countries, by and large, did not starve. And in, in America, nobody starved for want of charity uh, in this country in all of its history. So it's not that the church fell down on the job and the government swooped in like sweet people. It's that the government came in and seized this yeah. calling of the government. The church's failure, <coughs> excuse me, was to let them, yeah. but they didn't. They didn't fail in advance. What the government wanted was all the power that goes with this. And that's why they do it. Brother, I had a feeling this might happen when we agreed to do this together. I've got four pages worth of questions for you, and we've actually not got left page one yet. We are going to have to, if you're willing, to come back and do another couple of parts to finish this off. Oh, I would be delighted to. And in the future, I'll try to be a little bit more concise. No, I'm sorry please, no, please do not. This is absolutely amazing. And it just highlights, um, you know, how great your book is. Um, let, let's agree to do part two. It, you know, hopefully if we can uh, get it in your schedule within the next couple of weeks. So, if, you know, if you're listening to this, look out for that. For this part that we've just been discussing, RC, have you got any closing thoughts? And also tell people where they can get your book from. Well, they can get the book from Inner Sanctum Publishing, I-N-N-E-R-S-A-N-C-T-U-M, publishing.com. It's called Biblical Economics, uh, and I don't know that it is on Amazon yet. Uh, it is with its fifth publisher now, uh, 35 years later. Uh, oh, and by the way, I, I, with each new edition, I go back and update the numbers and and all because the principles don't change yeah yeah uh, but you can get it there at uh, innersanctumpublishing.com and uh if you're interested in these kinds of things occasionally i talk on economic matters on my own podcast i actually have two of them jesus changes everything and ask rc and sometimes these kinds of issues come up there and uh, i talk about them or write about them on my blog which you can find at rcsproljr.com Brilliant. Well, I'm going to make sure that I get all of the links for your book, for your podcast, and also for your social media. They're going to be in the description below. So wherever you're listening or watching this interview, make sure that you do that. And also make sure that you've subscribed to this show as well so that you can make sure that you can hear the following conversation when we pick this back up again in a couple of weeks' time. RC, thank you so much for joining us. Always so good to talk to you. My pleasure, David. Anytime. Thank you.